Well, please do take your Bibles and turn with me now to Isaiah chapter 52. Isaiah chapter 52, where we pick up this morning at verse 3, and we'll read through verse 12. Isaiah chapter 52, reading from verse 3. For thus says the Lord, you are sold for nothing and you shall be redeemed without money. For thus says the Lord God, my people went down at the first into Egypt to sojourn there, and the Assyrian oppressed them for nothing. Now therefore, what have I here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people are taken away for nothing. Their rulers wail, declares the Lord, and continually all the day my name is despised. Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day they shall know that it is I who speak, here I am. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice together, they sing for joy, for eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted His people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared His holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Depart, depart, go out from there. Touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her. Purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord, for you shall not go out in haste, you shall not go out in flight, for the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. Let us pray. O well, Lord, our God, your word testifies of itself that it is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, that it pierces down into the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow, and it discerns the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. As we sit under your word now as it is preached, we pray that the Holy Spirit would wield that sword to great effect, that our faith would be strengthened, our joy deepened, our lives purified, and in it all, God glorified. Amen. In 2 Chronicles chapter 36, the fall of Jerusalem in 586 BC is described in in stunningly vivid detail. In 2 Chronicles 36, picking up at verse 17, we read this. It says, Therefore the Lord brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans, who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary, and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or aged. He gave them all into his hand. And all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and of his princes, all these he brought to Babylon. And they burned the house of God, and broke down the wall of Jerusalem, and burned all its palaces with fire, and destroyed all its precious vessels. He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths all the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. In these few verses, the chronicler 
encapsulates and describes the total devastation that came upon Jerusalem when the Babylonians swept in from the north in 586 BC. The image that we have to have in our minds when we, when we think about the Babylonian invasion is one of total devastation and utter desolation, this overwhelming empire devouring Jerusalem. As you think about this scene, you have to have in your mind's eye a picture of the Babylonian troops marching over the horizon with Jerusalem just desolate and smoldering in their wake and the captive Judeans in tow. When you think of Jerusalem, you, you need to have in your mind's eye those ruined castles and cathedrals that you've seen pictures of all across the United Kingdom, places that you can tell were once magnificent and, and glorious, but now all just left with a few walls standing. Jerusalem, a place that once hosted the nations, a place that was once under Solomon, a the epicenter of, of wealth and power in all of the world, a place in which kings made pilgrimage. More than that, a city that was the holy capital, the beating heart of the people of God, centered on the temple and on the covenant relationship that Israel had with God that was symbolized and dramatized in that great meeting place of heaven and earth. But as the Babylonian troops marched north again, with the exiles in tow, all that was left of Jerusalem was a ruin. The smoke rising, the great city doors broken down, the palace stripped and torched, the temple stripped and torched, the city walls lying as crumbled heaps, the city now just lying silent. It was a moment that the Judeans thought would never come. The chronicler says that all this happened to fulfill the words of Jeremiah, but you remember how the Judeans had answered Jeremiah. When he had warned of this great devastation, they replied to him as, as if they had found this trump card that would keep them safe from the judgment of God. They replied to his warnings, Jeremiah 7, by, by simply chanting, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. As if to say they had this, this talisman, this, this lucky charm as they had begun to think of the temple. It was their security. Never in a million years, Jeremiah, will God come and destroy his own temple. But here it was, in 586 B.C., an abomination of desolation. But now, here in Isaiah 52, as Isaiah continues to reassure his readers of the abundant, lavish nature of the salvation to be found in God, as he brings this little uh, excursus to a close, this little excursus, you remember, in which he has directly addressed his readers, in which he has asked them as if, as if to say, do you believe the gospel that I've been preaching to you, readers? This little excursus in which Isaiah has put the flow of its thought on pause to turn and break that fourth wall and address his readers and, and urge them to lay hold of God in faith and repentance and, and assuring them that as soon as they do, they will only find God holy, good, and kind, and merciful. 
As Isaiah now brings this to a close before he goes on to that fourth and final servant song in verse 13, he draws it to a close by depicting for his readers a vivid scene that is designed to act as this great conclusion to everything that he has just said. Here, Isaiah paints for them this image, this scene. You have to you have to imagine it, just as you have to imagine the devastation of Jerusalem. Just, just get this in, you, in your minds. This scene, he's, he's painting a picture of a, a herald running from Babylon to Jerusalem. Now, if, if something significant happens in our world, we know it instantaneously, right? We have live feeds on the war in Ukraine. We know what our president has said the moment that he said it. We know what the Chinese president has said the moment that he has said it. Right? We live in a world of instantaneous communication. But you understand that in the ancient world, the only way that news could spread was through the movement of heralds, messengers, who would travel fast as they could from the scene of the action to go back and report on what had happened. If a king won a war, a herald would be sent back to the capital city. A runner would come from the scene of the battle and, and run back to the capital. And he would stand on the walls of that city and he would proclaim to the inhabitants good news of great joy. Their king had won. Their kingdom stood. Their king reigned. That's the scene that Isaiah is painting here. This messenger, this herald running from Babylon, maybe, maybe riding a horse, but traveling as fast as he can up through Iraq, up through Syria, down through Lebanon, and back to Jerusalem. The gospel that Isaiah has been preaching has, has been proclaimed. The people have read his words. The, the people have believed it. They have grasped what we've been looking at over the past few weeks. They have grasped what this great salvation coming from the merciful hands of God means. They, they, now, they, they have great comfort in life and death, to use that imagery of, the, of Heidelberg 1. They know that they belong body and soul in life and death to God, their faithful Savior, and they know that they are released from their fear to glorify Him and enjoy Him forever. Westminster, Shorter Catechism 1. Right into the darkness of the exile, the light has, has shone. Remember, that's this whole excursus. Isaiah is, is depicting, is, is imagining, anticipating. The exiles hearing this gospel and believing. The light of the gospel shining into the darkness, the captives being set free, their salvation secured. And while they still await the proclamation of King Cyrus that would send them home, to all intents and purposes, the exile's over and the sinners are reconciled to God. And as this revival, believe and return to God in faith and repentance, they send this herald. You, you, must, you must go. You must go to Jerusalem, and you must tell them the good news of such full and rich salvation. And the image 
here is that of the watchman standing on the, on the ruins. Right? The chronicler passes over this, but we know from other places that some of the poor were left in the land. Those deemed not worthy enough to be taken into exile. These poor who had lived in this land, scratching out a living for themselves among the ruins. And as the images of them standing in the evening, on the evening watch, on the walls of ruined Jerusalem, and they see this runner coming over the horizon, and they hear the proclamation, your God has not been defeated. Your God, Israel, He reigns. Evil has not been victorious. God, your God reigns. The battle was His, and the victory has been secured. In verse 9, what's the response of the of those who dwell amongst the ruins? They break out into song. They delight in the God who in the midst of great judgment has, has remembered mercy, who has provided this gracious salvation for the objects of His wrath, that He has turned them from being the objects of His wrath into the delights of His heart. Just as Isaiah has exhorted the exiles to do, now these inhabitants of Jerusalem, they glorify God and they enjoy Him. They delight in the comfort and and redemption that God has brought for unworthy sinners. And you notice how the herald summarizes this gospel, right? If we can press the imagination just a little bit further, we can, we can imagine this runner coming to the broken down walls of Jerusalem, right? He's, he's out of breath, He's, he's worn out from his journey. He's hardly slept. He's hardly ate. So eager has he been to take this news back to Jerusalem. And he comes and he arrives at the walls and he's out of breath and his hands are on his knees while he tries to compose himself. And the watchmen are around him. What news do you have for us? And, and breathless, he just simply shouts, your God reigns. I wonder if that's how you summarize the gospel. It really is a perfect summation of the good news. If you boil down the substance of the Christian faith, what are you left with? The knowledge that your God reigns. The story of redemption, it's a story of the battle of two kingdoms. The story of two tribes going to war and the big question, who will win? Which king will be victorious, God or the devil? The New Testament calls the, the ruler of this age. That's how it's depicted in Genesis 3, isn't it? All of humanity, they're divided into one of two camps, the offspring of the serpent or the offspring of the woman. Those two camps immediately depicted in the conflict between Cain and Abel. Cain, the offspring of the evil one, and Abel, the offspring of the woman. That's what we see at the deluge. 
the world divided into those who with Noah listen to the word of God and cast themselves upon him in faith and those who continue in their rebellion against God, shunning any notions of God's crown rights and rejecting any notions of the judgment of sin. It's what we see in Jacob and Esau. It's what we see in the Exodus and that great battle between the Egyptian gods and Israel's God. It's what we see in the conquest of Canaan the rule of God opposed by those who, although they knew the might and power and glory and, and mercy of Israel's God, as Rahab testified, yet still they kick against His sovereign rights and reign and try to overthrow His kingdom. That's what we see in the exile itself, that great dark moment when it seemed like the forces of evil really were more powerful, when a, a shadow fell on the earth, and just like with Cain's murder of his brother, it seemed as if evil really would win the day. All throughout Scripture, this great battle, two tribes going to war, two kingdoms clashing, the battle of good versus evil, the battle of light versus darkness, the battle of death versus life, and the great question hanging pregnant, who will win this war? It is, of course, the great battle that we see extended into the Gospels. This great war that, that plays itself out in the most heated of battles in the life of our Lord Jesus. But why is it that you see in the Gospels things you don't see anywhere else in Scripture? But why is there suddenly a great concentration of demonic possession? You don't see that in other places in Scripture. People will talk as if demons are everywhere in the Bible, but they're not. They're in the Gospels, there's a couple in Acts, but really it's concentrated in the life and ministry of our Lord Jesus. Why is that? It's because the devil knew that with the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the war had intensified in a way that it had never done before. This was D-Day. The incarnation of our Lord Jesus was Caesar crossing the Rubicon. It was a definitive escalation of hostilities from which there would be no turning back, and the devil knew that he needed to throw everything that he had at this Messiah. But in response, what do we see in and through our Lord Jesus? We see greater demonstrations of His glory and might than we had ever seen previously. We see greater demonstrations of God's determination to save than we had ever seen previously. We see signs and miracles like nowhere else. Like with demons, people talk as if signs and wonders are everywhere in Scripture, but they're not. They're not even that common in the New Testament. The apostles do not train their congregations to expect that great signs and wonders will continue in their lives. The expectation is that with the passing of the apostolic age, the signs and wonders will pass too. So, why this concentration? Why this great demonstration? 
because it was part of this battle. As evil intensified, so did God's manifestation of His power and glory to overthrow it. The whole of Jesus' ministry, a great demonstration that while this was a great battle of good versus evil, it was not a battle of equal and opposite forces. Now, it looked like that at times. Perhaps even it looked as if If anything, it looked as if it was weighted in the other direction, evil seeming to routinely gain the upper hand. But in the life of Jesus, the signs and wonders He performed were great declarations that Israel's God reigned. And the opposition of the devil and the hatred of the devil was destined to be defeated. And so, when Jesus went to the cross and was crucified, In the greatest act of evil the world has ever seen, John Piper calls it history's most spectacular sin, the brutal murder of Jesus Christ, the morally perfect, infinitely worthy divine Son of God. So, when Jesus went to the cross and was crucified, but seeing the reign and rule of God in the life of ministry of Jesus, the thoughtful reader knows that the cross is not, cannot be, the devastation it first appears. Jesus had told His disciples that He was going to Jerusalem to be arrested and crucified and buried, but that on the third day He would rise again. But they struggled to hear it. They were, to use Martin Luther's phrase, theologians of glory. Knowing that Jesus was the Messiah, they could only ever conceive of victory after victory, of riches and honor and glory, of thrones and kingdoms and dominion. And so, when Jesus was crucified, all of them, except for John, were scattered, confused and devastated by His death and thrown into a disarray, but they ought not to have been. All that happened was just what Jesus had been saying to them on the road to Jerusalem. It was what He was depicting to them all throughout His ministry. Evil might appear great, but He was always greater. And so, when Jesus rose from His grave on the third day, it was the great and final declaration that the death blow had been dealt to evil. As God had foretold in that curse upon the serpent in Genesis 3.15, the son of the woman would be bruised and was bruised at the cross, wounded but not mortally. But in the resurrection of Jesus, in His defeat of the grave, the head of the serpent had been crushed, a mortal wound from which He would never recover. What was the resurrection of Jesus Christ? It was the greatest declaration that our God reigns, and nothing and no one can stand in His way. This is the good news of Christianity, that your God reigns is the driving principle that makes the gospel supremely good news. The knowledge that evil lies under the sovereign hand of our good God, and that He uses His rule and reign of it for His own good ends, for the punishment of evil, for the correction and sanctification of His people, even to the very obtaining of salvation for His people in history's most spectacular sin. 
The king, the heart of the king, the proverb tells us, is like a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. It's the same of evil. He makes it his servant and uses that which opposes him and his people for the good of his people and for his own glory. Christian, your God reigns. I wonder how that sits with you this morning. The sovereignty of God. A dry doctrine, perhaps. Maybe intellectually stimulating, but little else. Joyced when they heard news of the sovereignty of their God and His rule and reign over everything and everyone that seemed only ever to oppose them and destroy them. They sang when they heard the news of this herald. And why did they sing? Because the Lord has comforted His people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. They sang because they understood that in the sovereignty of God lay the security of their salvation, even while they dwelt within a wasteland. Now, Christian, you live in a wasteland, a world devastated by sin and its consequences. Now, it's a beautiful wasteland for sure, a world that was created good, even very good by God, a world in which that goodness can still be seen and, and discerned. It's why the psalmist says it continues to bear testimony to the glory of its maker. But yet, how does Paul describe it in Romans 8? It is groaning under the weight of sin. It is awaiting the day when Paul says it will be set free from its bondage to corruption to obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. But if you think this world is beautiful, wait until you see the world to come. But as we await that day when Christ will return and release this creation from its groaning bondage, when Christ will return and make all things new and usher in that Revelation 21, 22, new heavens and new earth, free from sin and free from the effects of sin. As we live in this wasteland, the knowledge that our God reigns comforts our heart and gives us joy and compels us to sing in this wasteland because we know that while we don't see it yet, we know that its future and ours is secure. What God has said He will do, nothing and no one can stand in His way. And so, what that means, Christian, is that your life in this present world is not just a battle for survival. Your life is, as one commentator summarized, verses 11 and 12, not a battle for survival, but now, in the knowledge of the reign and rule of your God, it has become a holy pilgrimage. We know that only good awaits us. We know that in the meantime, God is, verse 12, our strong escort going before us and defending us on the rear. Christian, you don't need to live in a posture of just trying to make it through. It's just striking the days off the calendar until Christ returns, of just bearing up and pressing on. 
and you understand the reign and rule of your God, you are enabled to live out your salvation in the midst of this present world. And so your life becomes not one of reluctant obedience, perhaps hoping that you can just be incognito and hope nobody notices that you're a Christian, that you can just get through and get to the end without too much trouble. No, knowing that God is your security, knowing that He reigns and rules even over those who would oppress you and persecute you and do you harm, knowing that your God goes before you and hedges you in behind, your life becomes one of holy pilgrimage, a life of joyful submission to God, a life that desires to be conformed in thought, word, and deed to His holy law so that we live in this world of darkness as children of light that we live in this wasteland with the savor of the new world upon us, so that we live, Romans 12, as living and holy sacrifices, standing distinct from this world in which we live, so that they might see, 1 Peter 3, even in the midst of opposition and persecution, that they might see that you belong to another that you are ruled and reigned by the sovereign Lord, one in whom you are supremely confident, one in whom you are profoundly at peace, one from whom you have received a rock-solid hope for the future that anchors and directs your life in the present, knowing that the sovereignty of God is for us in Jesus Christ knowing that God has been propitiated, to use that word we've referred to time and again, that the wrath of God against us in our sin has been turned into the favor of God for us in Christ. We want to live demonstrating that new life to this world. We want to live in a way that testifies to the glory of our King and His reign in this present world. We want the ends of the earth to see in the testimony of the church the salvation of our God, that they might come in and trust Him, that they might with us find comfort and security for their souls, that they might with us look forward to the consummation of our salvation at the end of days. As Isaiah brings this little excursus to a close, he's about to pick up again his main narrative with this fourth and final servant song, but as he brings this little tangent to a close, he does it with this vivid and evocative picture of hope in the wasteland, of joy in the midst of ruin, of confidence in a world of threats. He leads them to see that at the core of it all lies this glorious declaration that their God reigns. That is the good news that this gospel brings to sinners. The good news that gives us peace and happiness and security, even in the midst of great trouble. Our God reigns. And Heidelberg 1, therefore all things must work together for our salvation. It's what we sing, isn't it? Pardon for sin and a peace that endureth thine own dear presence to cheer and to guide. Strength for today, 
and bright hope for tomorrow. Blessings all mine with 10,000 besides. Let us pray. Almighty God, our Father in heaven, oh, what joy there is to be found in the kingdom of God, that we who once were on the other side of this great war, rebels against God, traitors to God, but now in the grace of God, subdued by God, renewed by God, enlivened by God, comforted by God. Oh, Lord, as we live in this present world that is so difficult at times, we pray that this gospel would be deep within our hearts, that it would be firmly rooted, and that we would live as a people supremely comforted and at peace. Oh, Father, we want to radiate the new life we have in Christ, and so help us by Your Holy Spirit to be peaceful and joyful, even to the extent that those around us would ask us to give an account for this otherwise inexplicable hope that we might tell of the grace and mercy of God, and that we might invite any and all to come and partake with us. Father, bless us, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen.